Okay, we're uh, going through the Gospel of John. We're in John chapter 13. In the last lesson, uh, we're, we're in the last week of Jesus' life. The last few days, actually, he's entered into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. And uh, uh, Jesus identified Judas as the one who's going to betray him. In the last lesson, we looked at Jesus washing the disciples' feet. And... Um, uh, so one of the challenges that I have when I read the Gospel of John is Matthew, Mark, and Luke are all similar. And in fact, there's a, there's a technical term, synoptic, which means optic is eye, S-Y-N is one. It's basically, it's like seeing with one eye. So it's like Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are seeing with one eye. John is seeing with the other eye. So it's different, and I guess you put it together and you get the stereo picture of everything. So... Uh, so, so the question that I have in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, we just had the Last Supper. We 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 we, we celebrated the Eucharist, which is which is uh, commemorating the Last Supper of Jesus, um, which was a Passover meal, and uh, you know we had the 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 unleavened bread, which is Jesus, Jesus said, "This is my body," and and the cup, "This is my blood," and that's talked about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. But it's not talked about in John. So the question is, when you're piecing the stories together, how do they fit together? And uh, people have tried doing that over the ages. And one, one thing that's common to all, all four stories is the, the story of Judas being identified as the one who took the bread is the same in all four stories. So it's in... Uh, now, Matthew 26, it says, He who dips his hand with me in the dish. Uh, Mark 14 is very similar. And then uh, uh, Luke 22, where Jesus presents the cup of the covenant in his blood. And he says, The hand of my betrayer is with me at the table. So uh, the, the, the story about Jesus identifying Judas with the bread takes place at the time of the the, the same the same evening as the the Last Supper. So, I would assume that the story here is taking place at that time. It's not in the Gospel of John, but I'm assuming that that's that's how I would that's how I would understand this. That this is all taking place on the same time. So this is the Thursday, the day before the evening before Jesus is crucified. There is a uh, you know how do you put the Gospels together? I was looking at the there was an early uh, an early Christian writer named Tatian, who was a disciple of Justin Martyr, who wrote a harmony of the four Gospels called the Diatessaron, fancy word, dia means through, and tessera is four in Greek, so it's through the four. So it's, he wrote one uh, compilation, one harmony of the four Gospels, and it's just basically, it's like somebody took scissors and cut out pieces and glued them all together. It's just... There's very little commentary. It's just parts of the gospel, but he puts them in the order that he thinks that they should be in. And uh, so it's interesting, and this was in the East, in the Eastern part of the church for quite a while. People use this as their Bible. So sometimes if I'm trying to figure out where does something in John refer to, uh, how does this fit with the other gospels, I'll look there at least to get his opinion. It's not inspired, but it's an early, it's an early version. Ironically, some of us know Nick Zola, from times in the past, Nick Zola decided to give up a promising career in engineering. He decided to study the Bible seriously, so now he is a one of the foremost uh, experts on 
lactation and the diatessaron. So he's uh, uh, he's gone on. He's teaching over at Pepperdine right now. But uh, so so uh, he's 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 put his his uh, his good mind to good use. So I want to pick up the story here in John chapter 13 and verse 8. But in order to we're kind of we're kind of jumping in the middle of the story. So I want to review. The first seven, what happens in the first 17 verses in John before we dive in here. So the first 17, John 13 verses 1 to 17, we, we hit this last time, but, but this, this picks up immediately on some of the things that just happened. So, uh, so there's a, this is the story of, uh, there's an evening meal, Jesus with his 12 disciples, and he goes and washes the feet of all his disciples, wiping them with a towel. Peter says, don't wash my feet. And then Jesus says, if, you, if I don't wash, you have no part of me. He says, well, in that case, wash my feet, my hands, my, my, my head. You need to wash not just my feet, a lot of other things too. And Jesus says, no, 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 you're already clean. You just need to wash your feet. Your feet are the only part that are dirty. And he says, but not all of you are clean. So this ties into what's about to happen. He says, not all of you are, for it says he knew who would betray him. That's why he said, you are not all clean. That's John chapter 13, verses 10 and 11. And previous to that, in verse 2, it said, At supper being ended, the devil having already put it in the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him. So John chapter 13, huge emphasis in the story as far as the action in identifying Judas as the one who is going to betray Jesus. And this seems to be the main action. Now, you might ask the question, well, why does it matter that Judas betrayed Jesus. Why was that important? Why, why do all four Gospels have to mention this? They don't even all mention the Lord's Supper. What's the significance of this? And we'll, we'll come back to that um, in the rest of this lesson here. Why is it important that Judas betrayed Jesus? I mean, Jesus was a controversial character. They could have just ganged up on him. His enemies could have, could have ganged up on him once when he was out teaching publicly. They could have surrounded him and taken him then. But there's a whole thing about Judas betraying him, Judas getting the bread, Judas leaving, and then kissing him. There's the whole whole story, side story surrounding Judas and uh, in, in the story of Jesus' uh, betrayal and, and death here. So let's pick up the story in John chapter 13, starting in verse 18. I'm reading out of the New King James. I'll read verses 18, 30. You read along with me if you have a Bible handy. So uh, Jesus had just said, after washing their feet, I have, um, he said, I've given you an example that you should, I, you should do as I have done for you. No servant is greater than his master. You'd be blessed if you do these things. Now, verse 18, Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. 
I know whom I have chosen, but that the scripture may be fulfilled. He who eats bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Now I tell you before it comes, that when it does come to pass, you may believe that I am he. Most assuredly, I say to you, he who receives whomever I send receives me, and he who receives me receives him who sent me. When Jesus had said these things, he was troubled in spirit and testified and said, Most assuredly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. Then the disciples looked at one another, perplexed about whom he spoke. Now there was leaning on Jesus' bosom one of his disciples whom Jesus loved. Simon Peter therefore motioned to him to ask who it was of whom he spoke. Then leaning back on Jesus' breast, he said to him, Lord, who is it? Jesus answered, It is he to whom I shall give a piece of bread when I have dipped it. And having dipped the bread, he gave it to Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon. Now after the piece of bread, Satan entered him. Then Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. But no one at the table knew for what reason he said this to him. For some thought, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus said to him, By those things we need for the feast, by those things we need for the feast, or that he should give him some, something to the poor. Having received the piece of bread, he then went out immediately, and it was night. So let's let's go over the facts of the story here. So Jesus quotes from Psalm 41. And says it has a prophecy, uh, about, this is the one about uh, he who has lifted up his, his heel. He quotes from Psalm, one line in Psalm 41 and saying it contains a prophecy that will be fulfilled. And then he says after this prophecy is fulfilled, they would know that I am he. And the disciples are perplexed. They didn't know which one he was referring to when it says one of you will lift up his heel against me and they, they didn't know who it was so even though Judas was in their midst apparently he was so good as a deceiver that none of them had any clue that it was him so Peter wants to know and so he notices that one the one disciple says the disciple whom Jesus loved Peter asks him can you just ask Jesus who he's talking about? And, and so that's, that's what he does. So Peter asks the disciple whom Jesus loved. And, uh, you know, there's a question people ask is, well, who is the disciple whom Jesus loved? How do you know who that was? Well, it, the, uh, it, this phrase appears several times in the Gospel of John. This is the first time we run into it, but we'll see it a few more times between now and the end, end of John. And the last time it appears in the Gospel of John is in John chapter 21, where it says the disciple whom Jesus loved. And then it says, and this is the one who's writing all these things down. So he finally, at the end of the story, reveals the author of this book is the one whom Jesus loved. So, uh, and, and from early times, the Christians have understood this as referring to uh, the Apostle John who was... Uh, one of the, the two sons of Zebedee, so he's a fisherman, his father's a fisherman. So, uh, you know, that's, 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 been, uh, that's, that's been the historic understanding. People come up with uh, uh, other ideas, but, but I would say that that's the overwhelming historical 
understanding. So, so the disciple whom Jesus loved, who, who I would assume is the Apostle John, certainly makes sense here, uh, goes and asks Jesus, and Jesus says, the one that I give the bread to, and he dips the, the bread in, in, into the, the food, I don't know if it's the gravy or whatever it is, or the wine. He, he dips the bread and gives it to Judas, and uh, then he says, it says, the Satan enters Judas, Jesus tells him, what you do, do quickly, and then he departs. And all the other disciples who are there watching what's going on don't understand. He says, what you have to do, do quickly. He, Judas leaves, and she, he figures, oh, he must have, Jesus must have given him a job to do. Maybe he's the keeper of the poor. Maybe he's going to take care of the poor. He's going to make arrangements or something like that. So they're mystified by this. J- Judas understands. Jesus understands. But nobody else in the room knows quite the significance of what's going on here. So um, now let's, let's back up. Verse 18. Let's start at the beginning. Jesus says, I do not speak concerning all of you. So what does he say when I do not speak concerning all of you, what is he referring to? Well, he just said, the last thing he said was, uh, was talking about washing their feet and he expects them to do, do the same thing. Is that what he's talking about? Or is he talking about, before that he said, not all of you are clean. I think that's, personally, I think that's what he's talking about, but you may, maybe it's some combination of the two. So I'm assuming he's, he's referring to the earlier statement when he said, not all of you were clean. And then here he says, I don't speak concerning all of you. So he's talking about, he's talking about, uh, he's about to talk about the one who was unclean there. And then he says that the scripture may be fulfilled, and he quotes from Psalm 41, verse 9. Or if you have a Bible that's based on the Septuagint, the numbering is a little different. It's, it's, uh, there it's, it's designated Psalm 40, verse 10. So, and he says, when these things come to pass, you will believe that I am he. That's, that's what's going to happen here. So, now, question. When Jesus quotes one verse of one psalm here and when he says this prophecy will be fulfilled is he talking about just that verse or is he talking about the whole psalm what is he talking about that's going to be fulfilled is you can't tell for sure but i'll give you an example in Mark 15, it says, So the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, he was numbered with the transgressors is verse 12 of Isaiah 53. But the end of Isaiah 52 and basically all of Isaiah 53, it's one massive prophecy about the suffering servant. He was numbered among the transgressors. So although he only mentions one fragment of one line, it's the whole thing is a prophecy. And when you go back and read it, you see that. So sometimes he'll, Jesus will mention a verse, or the, or the Bible will mention a verse, and it's just ta- it's talking about an entire prophecy. It's like the tip of the iceberg. You know, you see the tip of the iceberg, but there's a whole lot more that's there once you go and explore. Uh, Matthew 27, it says, When they crucified him, they divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled, which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, for my clothing they, cla- they cast lots. That's one verse in Psalm 22. Psalm 22 is all about the, 
the uh, the crucifixion. It's a, it's a prophecy about the crucifixion. So I'm left wondering this little verse here about he he's raised the one I, I've shared my bread with has raised my heel against me. Is this is the whole? Could it be that the whole psalm is about this, or or just this one verse? Now, to be honest with you, I never asked that question before, so I thought I better go back and read this psalm and find out is there something more in there that might be interesting that Jesus is Jesus pointing to this psalm right here. So I want to know what's the rest of the psalm say, and and uh, so I never I never asked myself that question before, and. Uh, a while ago, I was reading from a work by Eusebius. Eusebius was a, he's famous as a church historian. He, he uh, wrote History of the Church, uh, and, but he also wrote a work that's not nearly as well known, but it's one that's really been very inspiring to me. It's called Proof of the Gospel. And uh, it was written around 320 AD, shortly before the time of the Council of Nicaea. And uh, I remembered, I, said, I just remembered, I read a long time ago, I said, didn't he talk something about this psalm in there somewhere? So I went back and, and, and dug it out, and sure enough, my memory was, uh, was serving right, and it was kind of shadowy. So back in Book 10 of Proof of the Gospel, Eusebius talks about this, and there's no other early Christian writer I know of that goes into detail in explaining this particular psalm. So I went and I read the psalm, and I also look back at what Eusebius had to say about the psalm in terms of its significance. And he's, he's using the evidence of the Old Testament prophecies to prove the faith to people who are skeptical. So as we go, I'm going to read the psalm and think about the points here, but also want to share some of, of his insights in terms of his little ex- explanation of this psalm here. So uh, let's, let's go back. Oh, I want to share with you one line. Before Eusebius gets, gets into his discussion of this particular psalm, he has a, a line which I particularly appreciate. It's an inter- introduction to Book 10. And he says, now I'm sure you can't, you can't, nobody today can relate to this. He says, it's been supposed by some that the book of Psalms merely consists of hymns to God and sacred songs and that we shall look in vain in it for predictions and prophecies of the future. Let us realize distinctly it contains many prophecies, far more than can be quoted now. So he says, you know, and that's how, isn't that how most people look at the, the, the Psalms today? They say, oh, the Psalms, that's a great, that's a great devotional work where we... We sing, we sing hymns to God. It's time to reflect on the, on the wonders of God and how much God loves us and forgives us and things like that to celebrate our relationship with God. He says, no, it's, it's not just that, that the Psalms are filled with so many prophecies. He said, I couldn't possibly have enough time to explain all of them to you. And then he goes into this Psalm. Now, I was thinking, Wow, this is a psalm that I've really ignored my whole Christian life. And he uses that as the introduction to this psalm. He says all the psalms are filled with prophecies about Jesus. I mean, that is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 24 when he he, uh, spoke to the apostles that were gathered together. He says, all things must be fulfilled which were written about me in the law of Moses the prophets, and the psalms. So Jesus says the law of Moses, the prophets, and the psalms all are filled with 
prophecies that he's fulfilled, and he opened up their minds to understand. So I, I just want to encourage you, the Psalms is a great source of, of devo- devotional inspiration, but it's a lot more than that. There are also many, many prophecies contained in there to build our faith, and that's exactly what not only Eusebius, but also uh, Jesus said the same thing. So let's turn to um, Psalm 41, or if you have a Bible that's based on the Septuagint, it's Psalm 40, and I guarantee um, uh, I'm, we'll be mentioning Psalms, and I'll be getting, if, if, if uh, I get the numbering confused because they're so similar between the two versions, so uh, if, if you can't follow what I'm saying, just look forwards or backwards by one Psalm and you'll catch it. So uh, Psalm, Psalm 41 or Psalm 40 in the Septuagint. So I'm going to read the whole thing, and... I, you know, I'd never studied this psalm before, but Jesus is, is pointing to it. And so let's think about this and work through it together. Is it just, and the question I want to ask you at the outset, is it just that one verse in the psalm that's about Jesus? Or is there a little more in there that talks about him as well? I'm reading from a version that's, uh, this is Orthodox Study Bible, it's based on this, the translation based on the Septuagint, so it may be slightly different than the one you have, but it should be pretty similar. Blessed is he who understands the poor and needy. The Lord will deliver him in an evil day. May the Lord keep him and give him life and make him blessed on the earth and not deliver him into the hands of his enemies. May the Lord help him on his bed of pain. You turned his bed from sickness to wholeness. O Lord, I said, have mercy on me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil things against me. When will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see us, he speaks in vain. His heart gathers lawlessness to itself. He went forth and spoke the same. All my enemies whispered together against me. Against me they devise evils for me. They testify a lawless word against me. Since he is asleep, will he rise again? For even the man of my peace, in whom I hoped, who ate my bread, dealt deceptively with me. But you, O Lord, have mercy on me. And raise me up, and I will repay them. For this I know you are pleased with me, because my enemy did not rejoice over me. And because of my innocence, you supported me, and established me before you forever. Blessed is the Lord God of Israel, from everlasting to everlasting. Amen. Amen. This is a psalm of David written about a thousand years before now. Does this apply to David, or does it apply to someone else? Okay, I think we know the answer to that. So let's work our way through this psalm right here. It says, a man who is concerned with the poor is blessed. When Jesus began his ministry, quoted from Isaiah in Luke chapter 4, it says, Spirit of the Lord is upon me. He's anointed me to preach the good news to the poor. Sent me to heal the brokenhearted, proclaim liberty to the captives, and recovery of sight to the blind. So Jesus is the one who is concerned about the poor. Eusebius talks about this in particular, and he says 
about Jesus, he says, our Savior, who was in the beginning the Word of God, wisdom, life, the true light, possessing all wealth of goods, for our sakes became poor. That's what it talks about in Philippians chapter 2. Taking on flesh, being made in kind to a mortal man and beggars, taking on him the form of a slave and a poor man. He goes on and talks about what just happened here. Jesus took his outer garment off, put a towel around his waist, and went washing the feet of people like a servant or a slave would do at the beginning of this story in in Luke chapter 13. So that's where it starts out, the poor man and a beggar. In 2 Corinthians 8 it says, Christ for our sakes became poor. And then he goes on and says that, uh, you see, he says, For the man of my peace in whom I trusted, he that ate the bread and raised his heel against me, that's the, the verse that Jesus quoted, he says, He it is then who says at the beginning, I said, Lord, have pity on me, heal my soul, I've sinned against you, and speaks throughout the whole psalm. So he says the whole psalm applies to Jesus. He's suffering on a bed of pain. Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 talks about that. Uh, One troubling verse here you may have noticed, it says, Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. Well, that couldn't apply to Jesus, could it? Jesus never sinned. Eusebius makes the point, he says, you know, there's another translation of this passage. It says, Heal my soul, even if I have sinned against you. That's a Jewish translation. And he also makes the point, he says that, Christ took on the sin of the world. That's what it says in Isaiah chapter 53. He bore our sin. He participated. Uh, He was the Lamb of God who took all the sins of the world upon himself. Eusebius says, "Since, since being in the likeness of sinful flesh, he condemned sin in the flesh, the words quoted are rightly used. And that, He made our sins his own from his love and benevolence toward us. He says these words, adding further on the same psalm, you protected me because of my innocence. So on the one hand, early on it says, it talks about uh, because of my sin, and then later on it says you protected me because of my innocence. So he is innocent, and that's why God saves him. But he's taken on all the sins of other people, as it says so many places in the scriptures. And I'll put more in the notes related to that. Well, the next thing, it says his enemies are conspiring against him. And isn't that what it says in Psalm 2? Why do the nations rage, the people blot a, plot a vain thing? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his Christ, against his anointed one. That's what happened. You have the religious leaders... And you have the government leaders, Pilate and, and the Jews and the high priests are all gathered together conspiring, powerful enemies against him. And then there's a verse in here that I know several of us noticed. It says, his enemies say, he is sleeping. Will he rise again? Now what is that talking about? So many places in Scripture, we hit this in Genesis and we've hit this before, so many places where sleeping and then waking up is used as a metaphor for death and resurrection. 
Genesis 49.9, the prophecy about um, uh, the, the uh, Judah. It says, he bows down and slept as a lion and as a cub. Who shall rouse him? This is a prophecy about death and resurrection of the descendant of the Messiah, who's descended from Judah. Same thing in Numbers 24.9, the, the, the oracle of Balaam. The same, the same warning is repeated there. The end, last chapter in Daniel, it says, Many who sleep in the dust of the earth will awake, some to everlasting life and others to disgrace and everlasting shame. Now, obviously he's not talking about people taking a nap under a pile of dust. He's talking about sleeping in the dust of the earth means you're dead and buried. He's speaking in poetic language. John chapter 11, uh, in verse 11, Lazarus is sick. And Jesus tells the disciples, Lazarus is sleeping. Let's go wake him up. And the disciples say, oh, if he's sleeping, that's good. Sleep is good. You should let, let him alone. Let him sleep. And then he explains, no, he's using that as a figure of speech. Uh, 1 Corinthians 15, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep but we shall all be changed. So that definitely, that's uh, for my, uh, my daughter and my grandson that has a special significance. We will all be changed, but we're not talking about changing <laughs> diapers here. We're talking about we'll be changed. Our, our body will be changed from, uh, 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 we transform. We shall not all sleep, but we'll all be changed. Uh, Ephesians 5.14, Therefore he says, Awake you who sleep, Arise from the dead, and Christ will give you light. There are so many examples in the scriptures. And it talks about his enemies say, he's sleeping, he won't get up again. And wasn't that what, what the enemies of Jesus thought? Let's kill him, and we'll be done with him. That'll be the end of him. That was their plan. And the same word that's used here for Rising up is used for resurrection in the, in the, you know, can mean rising up from sleep. It can mean standing up, going from sitting to standing up, or it can mean being resurrected from the dead. The word is, has, uh, can be just like in English, rising up can have multiple meanings. So, and then there's the passage in here that Jesus specifically points to. It says, the companion with whom he shared bread ended up deceiving him. This is the passage, this is the verse that Jesus quotes in John 13. And Eusebius commented on this. He said, For of a truth it is the lowest and most accursed of men who after sharing a master's table and the nurture of his instruction goes wrong and treats his benefactor in the opposite way to which he's been treated himself. The next thing it says, the Lord will raise him up because of his innocence. Talks about sleeping and being raised up. The Lord will raise him up because of his innocence. Jesus was resurrected from the dead because death held no power on him. The power of, of, of sin is death. Jesus, who was without sin, who died, could not be contained by death. In Acts 2, Peter said, God raised him up having loosed the pains of death because it wasn't possible that he would be held by death. Because of his innocence, death, he, he, he would be triumphant and would rise up from death. And then the other thing, the next thing it says that he would repay his enemies. 
Well, what is that talking about? In, uh, in, in uh, Psalm 110, it's, in verse 1, it says, uh, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand till I make your enemies your footstool. Who were the enemies of Jesus that were conquered? Well, one of them was death, the enemy of death. The, Jesus taunted death. Oh, death, where is your sting? Death, where is your victory? 1 Corinthians chapter 15 talks about that. And the other enemy was the Jews, the people who conspired against him. And uh, uh, Eusebius points this out. He's writing to people who were in the Roman Empire, and he says, look, read the writings of Josephus. He gives the history of the Jews. Look at what happened to the Jews just a few decades after they killed Jesus. The Romans came and obliterated the city, destroyed the temple, smashed the walls. And, and uh, he said, you can read this yourself. The enemies who conspired together to kill Jesus were themselves done in at the end, is that he triumphed over all of his enemies. Uh, and then the last thing here is it said he would be established before the Lord forever. David is writing this. Is this talking about David? Was David established before the Lord forever? No. He died and was buried, as Peter points out. Jesus was destined to reign over God's kingdom forever, as it says in 2 Samuel chapter 7, 1 Chronicles 17, as the angel told Mary in Luke chapter 1. He would be a priest forever, as it says in Hebrews chapter 5, in fulfillment also of Psalm 110. So Jesus would reign as a priest and a king forever. So, in answer to the question, this psalm here, Psalm, psalm 41, or Psalm 40, depending on which, 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 uh, how that was numbered in your Bible, the question is, is it just one line that refers to Jesus, or is it the entire psalm that Jesus is pointing to just this one verse? And of course, uh, I think it's pretty obvious the whole thing is about Jesus here. Uh, now, a question that I had is, what's this heel business in the story? What's with the heel? What is this? Jesus says, his heel will be lifted up against me. What is that all about? And when I go back and read in the, uh, the Old Testament, some of the translations will say, we'll talk about a heel, and then in other translations, it will talk about a deceiver, somebody who's deceiving. So what's with this? What's, what's, what's the story about the heel all about? Um, I'll give you an example. Uh, two translations based on the Septuagint, the Orthodox Study Bible, the one I read says, Even the man of peace in whom I hoped, he who ate my bread, dealt deceptively with me. That's one rendering. Another rendering, same, looking at the same, translating from the same Greek text from the Septuagint, from Brenton, it said, For even the man of peace in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, lifted up his heel against me. So, which is it? Lifting up the heel or deceiving me? Which way is the correct way to translate this? Well, actually both of them are correct. Lifting up the heel is literally, deceiving me is figuratively. 
Now, we use in English, there are expressions that we have, and Charlie, uh, being someone who, who is English is not your native language, this must be terribly confusing to, to, to people who come into our culture, that we have figures of speech that have to do with parts of our body that, uh, that maybe some of these you figured out, but some of them, it's very puzzling. When we say someone's nose is out of joint, okay, everybody knows what that means who's been raised in this culture. Charlie, Charlie may be scratching. If somebody's nose is out of joint, that means they're upset about something, okay? If we say somebody was twisting my arm, okay, we understand means somebody's putting some pressure on me to do something. They're twisting my arm. Uh, if someone says... Now, that was a really underhanded thing to do. Well, what, what are you talking about under your hand? Well, it's underhanded. It's an expression, which means it's, a, uh, uh, it's, it's something that's lacking integrity. Or somebody went behind my back and did that. That means they did it without telling me. They were, they were sneaky about it. Or I was stabbed in the back. They don't mean literally you're stabbed in the back. It's, a, it's the same thing, same thing as somebody went behind your back and did something that was really nasty. And then another expression is say, well, we were neck and neck. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean your necks are touching each other? Well, it, it's, it's an expression from horse racing. There are two horses, and the horses are neck and neck. They're, that means they're right next to each other as they're approaching the finish line. So there are all these expressions that have to do with body parts. <laughs> Who knows where they came from? But we all use them, and we all know what they mean. So what's the deal with heel and deception. I think it's the same thing. And I'll show this so you don't just have to believe me or a commentary. I can, I can show you an example of this. The, the most famous heel story, uh, or one of the two most famous heel stories in, in the Bible, in, in the, I just thought of the other one, okay. One of the most famous heel stories in, in, the, in the Old Testament is the birth of Jacob and Esau. Okay, the twins were born to Rachel. This is Genesis chapter 25. This is a heel story. This ties into this, okay? The first one comes out red, and he's hairy all over, so they call his name Esau, which I would assume is something like calling him Harry or something like, I don't know, something, but it's a, something appropriate for a person who's red and hairy, okay? Uh, loses something in translation there. Afterwards, his brother came out. His hand took hold of Esau's heel, so his name was called Jacob. So Jacob must mean grabbing somebody's heel, I guess. That's, that's what it says. His name was given as Jacob because he grabbed his brother's heel. That's how he got the name. So imagine the rest of your life, that's what you're called all the time, that you're called Mr. Heel Grabber. That's what a, what a, what a, you would, unfortunately, later on, God changes his name and gives him a new name, but he's got to deal with that his whole life of being known as a heel grabber. Uh, that's, that's his, that's a strange name to get. So later on, he, dis, he cheats his brother twice. The second time was, was just a classic example where he's deceiving his brother, he's deceiving his father. And he, he steals his brother's birthright. So he's a real, he's a real rat here. And uh, then Esau comes in after Jacob has already stolen the birthright, which is supposed to go to Esau. Then, then Esau shows up 
And it says, it's in Genesis 27, verses 34 to 36. It says, Esau cried with an exceedingly great and bitter cry, and he said to his father, Bless me, me also, my father. But he said, Your brother came with deceit, and he's taken away your blessing. And Esau said, Is he not rightly named Jacob? For he has supplanted me these two times. Other translations instead of supplanted me will say he outwitted me or he cheated me or he's one translation said he's taken me by the heel these two times literally okay so you get the picture jacob means heel grabber which also means deceiver it's it's of course he was called jacob because he's he he got the name for for grabbing his heel of course because he's a cheater he's he's a rotten cheater is what he is and that's why he got the name. He deserves that name. So the expression to grasp somebody's heel, the heel was associated with deceit. And I saw, you know, it was a, I was trying to figure out where does this word come for, this expression come from, a heel and deceit. And, and the idea, apparently, it comes from, it's a wrestling term. It's like you're wrestling with somebody and you're cheating. You grab their heel or you bite their heel or do something to their heel which you're not supposed to do. It's a cheater move. And, and, and so therefore, you're a cheater. You're, you're getting an unfair advantage. You're, you're sneaking up on the guy. It would be equivalent to us of saying, going behind somebody's back. Okay, this, this, the same idea that you're, you're cheating them and you're doing something that's unethical. The same word in Greek shows up in Jeremiah 9, 3 where he says every brother will utterly deceive. It talks about that. So the idea is it's just a, t- a tremendous deceit. Every brother will, will grab the heel. Uh, so, so anyway, given, given this, and the other passage I thought about the heel was in Genesis 3, the curse on Satan. Okay, that it says that uh, he'll be on guard against his heel or it will, uh, you know, he will... Uh, that he will uh, he will crush your head and you will strike his heel. So the, the the idea of someone grabbing the heel or watching out for the heel, the idea of, of deception. And Satan, of course, is the arch deceiver. He's the he's always he's Mr. Bait and Switch. He's Mr. He's Mr. Sneak up and get you get you when you're not looking. He's 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 the ultimate cheater and deceiver. Uh, so <clears throat> besides Eusebius, one of the questions I had was. Wow, this this Psalm 40, this is this is it's almost like the entire gospel is revealed. This is this is another major prophecy, like Isaiah 53 or Psalm 22, that that this 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 great prophecy in the Psalms. I thought no one ever explained this to me. For no one ever showed it to me. Jesus quoted it, but I just took it in passing. I think the, one of the lessons to me is when Jesus points out a Psalm. I need to go back and read the whole thing because there may be a lot more in there than, than I realized. There are two early Christian writers that talked about this psalm. Tertullian was one, and, and I'll, just, I'll just share what they got out of it here. Tertullian was a writer in North Africa and Carthage, and he uh, died around the year 230. And uh, he's talking about the passion and the suffering of Jesus. And he makes one point, which I thought was kind of amusing, so I'm going to share, share it in a connection because it was right before this other point. Uh, 
Tertullian is writing to Marcion, who's a heretic, and he's trying to explain to Marcion, no, these things really happen. He said, in like manner, does he know the very time it behooved him to suffer, since the law prefigures his passion? Accordingly, of all the festal days of the Jews, he chose the Passover. In this, Moses has declared there was a sacred mystery it is the Lord's Passover. Now, it's interesting. I was just reading through uh, Exodus, in Exodus chapter 12, when God gives all the, restrict, all the rules about the Passover, he says at the end of it, this is the Lord's Passover. Hmm. He says that right in, in fact, he says it twice in, in, in Exodus chapter 12. And he's, he's given the rules for the Passover, the, the one, the lamb, it's going to be slain, the blood of the lamb, you eat the bread without yeast. He goes through all these things and he says, this is the Lord's Passover. Interesting line. And Tertullian picks up on this. He says, talking about Jesus, how earnestly therefore does he manifest the bent of his soul when he says, with desire, I have desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. Luke twenty-two fifteen. What destroyer of the law was this who actually longed to keep the Passover? He's saying Jesus didn't destroy the law, he fulfilled it. He said, could it be that he was so fond of Jewish lamb? Okay, he's being sarcastic here. He says, why was he saying, I can't wait to have this Passover with you? Is because he, he loved to eat lamb dinner? No, that's not the reason. Why? Because... In Exodus 12, it's said over a thousand years beforehand, this is the Lord's Passover. It's his Passover. But Sertullian says, no, it was not because, it, was it not because he had to be led like a lamb to the slaughter? And because as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he didn't open his mouth? Isaiah 53 that he so profoundly wished to accomplish the symbol of his own redeeming blood. He might also have been betrayed by a stranger. Did I not find that even too, he here too he fulfills a psalm. He who did not eat bread with me has lifted up his heel against me. Quoting from Psalm 41. And without a price... He might have been betrayed. For what need of a traitor was there in the case of the one who offered himself to people openly and might quite as easily have been captured by force as taken by treachery? There might be no this might no doubt have been well enough for another Christ, but would not have been suitable in the one who was accomplishing the prophecies. So he's explaining that. The, the way that Christ was uh, betrayed, had, Jesus had to be betrayed that way because it was in fulfillment of the prophecies, including the prophecy about being sold for silver and uh, uh, casting the, the, the money that was paid for to the potter's, the potter's field. Um, you know, the whole idea that Jesus had to be betrayed this way, it reminded me of uh, one other prophecy. Let's look at Acts chapter 2. It talks about Judas betraying Jesus. Acts 
In Acts chapter 2, Tertullian says, no, he had to be betrayed this way. He couldn't have just be ganged up with by force. It had to happen exactly this way. In Acts chapter 2, let's start reading in verse 15. I'm sorry. In Acts chapter 1, let's start reading in verse 15. In those days, Peter stood up in the midst of the disciples. Altogether, number of names is about 120, and said, Men and brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke before, by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered with us and obtained a part in this ministry. Now this man purchased a field with the wages of iniquity, and falling headlong he burst open in the middle, with all his entrails gushing out. And it became known to all those dwelling in Jerusalem. So the field is called in their own language, Akeldama, which is field of blood. For it is written in the book of the Psalms, let his dwelling place be desolate, let no one live in it, and let another take his office. And it goes on there, and they have to replace some they have to replace uh, Judas with with another one, another one, another, let another take his office. So uh, the uh, so Peter's explaining that it had to be one from among their own who would betray Jesus, just as it said in in Psalm forty one, and and the sec he quotes two other prophecies, one from Psalm sixty nine, which many of us are familiar with. There's a lot there's a lot about the the resurrection there. The, I'm sorry about Jesus' death and resurrection there, but another one it says, "Let another take his office." That's in uh, let's turn in uh, Psalm one hundred eight and read there another prophecy about Judas. Let another take his office. And I thought, well, if I missed the other psalm, maybe I'm missing this one too. So let's take a look. And uh, in, in the Septuagint, Psalm 108, in other translations, it's Psalm 109. So think about this. Just this one passing reference so that, that, that Peter points out that they have to replace Judas, let another take his, his office. O God, do not pass over my praise in silence, for the mouth of the sinner and the mouth of the deceitful man opened against me. They spoke against me with a deceitful tongue, and they surrounded me with words of hatred and warred against me without cause. Instead of loving me, they falsely accused me. Mm. But I continued to pray, so they repaid me evil for good and hatred for my love. Let a, Set a sinner over him and let the devil stand at his right hand. And when he is judged, may he go forth condemned and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be very few and may a different man receive his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Let his children wander about to be beggars. Let them be cast out of their houses. Let the creditor search out whatever possessions he has. Let strangers plunder his labors. Let there be no helper for him nor a compassionate one for his fatherless children. Uh, So it goes on from there. So this is obviously a prophecy about Judas. It talks about 
the one who deceived the innocent man and who would be condemned and without hope at the end. Let his days be very few. Let another take his, his place of office. So this is, uh, this is another prophecy about how Jesus will be betrayed. Uh, it points back to Judas. So, that, so that, uh, I just want, want us to appreciate all the details of Jesus' life and death were explained beforehand in, in very, very detailed prophecies, even to the fact that Satan was going to be at the right hand of Judas, mm. who would be the one at the table of Jesus, that that's how he would be betrayed in the end. Um, and I'll close with uh, some, some uh, words from Ignatius. Ignatius is interesting to me because he is one of the earliest Christian writers. He died around the year 107. He was a bishop at Antioch, which was a great Christian center of, of missionary activity into the East. And uh, he, he died as a martyr. He was executed in Rome. And on the way to Rome, he wrote letters to other people. And you wonder, what, can, what gives somebody the faith to be willing to be a martyr? And so um, in a reading, why, did he, why was he able to do that? What gave him the faith? So he explained why he was willing to die for Christ. He says, as for me, I don't place my hopes in one who died for me in appearance, but in reality. For that which is false is quite abhorrent to the truth. He was baptized by John really and not in appearance. And when he preached the gospel three years and done signs and wonders, he who himself, that he who, who was himself the judge, was judged by the Jews, falsely so called, and by Pilate the governor, was scourged, smitten on the cheek, spit upon, wore a crown of thorns and a purple robe. He was condemned. He was crucified in reality and not in appearance nor imagination and not in deceit. He really died and was buried and rose from the dead, even as he prayed in a certain place, saying, But do thou, O Lord, raise me up again, and I shall recompense them. Which is basically, he's quoting from Psalm 41, verse 10. Uh, he saw this as a fulfillment of the great prophecy that he would be raised up, Lord, raise me up again, and I shall repay my enemies. And he says that the Father always hears him. But that's what gave him the confidence, that these things really happened. And he's, I mean, he's living just a few decades after... Uh, he, I mean, he knew personally some of the apostles. He, he believed that these things really happened because, of, because he knew the apostles, he knew the, heard the eyewitness accounts, and he saw the prophecies being fulfilled, including the one here about the resurrection. So, uh, um, the, uh, I'll close with his words. He says, And the Father, who always hears him, answered and said, Arise, O God, and judge the earth. For you shall receive all the heathen for your inheritance. The Father, therefore, who raised him up, will also raise up through him, apart from whom no one will attain true life. For he, for he says, I am the life, and he who believes in me, even though he dies, shall live, and everyone that lives and believes in me, even though he die, shall live forever. So uh, 
I hope that this, this prophecy in, in Psalm 41 will strengthen your faith that, that it was Jesus, that Judas betrayed Jesus to fulfill very detailed prophecies. And uh, also to encourage you when you're reading the Psalms to not only enjoy the great devotional treasury that it is, but also to open your eyes up and see the great faith-building prophecies. That, and that just as was fulfilled that Jesus would be raised from the dead and would, would inherit an eternal place with God, that we can have the same thing if we follow him. Amen. Amen.